Good morning. It is nice to be back in the church that helped raise me. And for those of you that I, that I don't know, uh, my name is James Michael Smith, and my father used to be the pastor here for about 12 years, so this is definitely like a homecoming. It's Christmas time. Advent season's here. Uh, a lot of things are going to be popping up on the social radar, and you'll have the Charlie Brown Christmas, It's a Wonderful Life, all of the things that we see every year. One of the things that I see every year as a Bible teacher, as a, somebody who teaches and studies Scripture and, 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 and tries to equip people, is I see every year, Christmas, and then they do it again at Easter too, a number of documentaries or programs on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, A&E, all those nerdy channels that I love, they always show around this time programs that are meant to give you the real story of Jesus or the real nativity or, or, or Easter or, or, excuse me, or Christmas as you've never heard it before. And they always get an array of scholars to come and tell you all the things that basically Scripture tells us about the birth of Christ and the, the, the nativity and all of these things that, that sort of undermine or, or try to get you to see it in a new way, in a new light. And that's not always bad. I'm, I'm a big fan of that, of, of getting people to see Scripture in a new light. That's what I do. That's what I love. But then you start hearing things like, well, Jesus wasn't really born in Bethlehem. They just needed to make that fit into the Old Testament prophecies, so the gospel writers made that up. Uh, you'll hear things that Jesus wasn't really the Son of God, never claimed to be, rather was a Galilean peasant who was caught up in a movement against the Roman Empire and used by various forces and died a cruel death unnecessarily. But then his followers wanted to carry on his legacy, and, and they felt this love and this warmth in their heart that he had taught them. And so they invented or, or gave birth to the account of the resurrection, and that's how the church was born. You hear all of these kinds of things. There's not, they're nothing new. They, they happen every year. Just flip channels and watch this season. You'll see it. I guarantee it. The problem is that everything we know about Jesus, everything we know about Christmas, uh, everything we know about the faith, really, at the end of the day, comes from Scripture. Um, without this... We don't have any of this, really. And so it's, it's crucial to understand the faith that we stand on. And that's what I do. That's what my, my, my teaching ministry is. Um, after the service, I have a table in the back. I'll be out there, and you can come get information about, about what I do and things like that. But, but it, it's all centered around teaching this book to adults, to people who, who wrestle with, with, with questions about the faith. And there's no better time to, to begin asking these kind of questions than around the season of Advent. Because Jesus, yeah, he came, he was born in a manger and stars and wise men and shepherds and all of those things, they're, they're, they're important, but they're not central to the message. They're, they're the extra and they're the decorations and they're the, the great things that surround the message. But at the end of the day, the message is central. What is the message? The message is that Jesus is God come to earth. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word. Emmanuel. It means with us God or with us is God. It, it, he is the Emmanuel. He is God come to earth to experience, to go through, to live out the life that we can't so that he can make a way for us to have 
fellowship with him. That's, that's the heart of the gospel. Well, Peter, Jesus' follower Peter, Peter, the guy who walked on water, he's the only guy besides Jesus ever to walk on water. Awesome thing to put on your resume. Peter wrote two letters that we have, and his last letter he wrote before he died was a letter we know of as 2 Peter. And 2 Peter, he ends this letter, and it's to Christians around the time that uh, close to Peter's death, or some people even think it might have been published shortly after he died by his followers who had accumulated his sayings. Regardless, Peter's message to the churches, he ends it. He, he, he finishes in chapter 3. In your uh, bulletin, you should have a handout like this. I've given you the scripture there so that you don't have to try to flip through and find it in your Bible. But I want to read how Peter ends his message, his final words to the Christians. It's 2 Peter 3, 15 through 17. He says, also, regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation, just as our dear brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. He speaks about these things, meaning the gospel, everything Peter's been writing about. He speaks about these things in all his letters, in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction, as they do with the rest of the scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you're not led away by the error of the immoral and fall from your own stability. Now, Peter, Peter here is saying some incredible things. One, Peter's talking about the gospel message, and he's saying, I'm not telling you anything that our brother Paul hasn't also told you in his letters. Peter's referencing the letters of Paul that we have in make up the New Testament. And then he says this. He says he writes some of these things. In his letters, there are things that are hard to understand. Now, Peter said that they're hard to understand. He's, he's Peter. He spent three years with Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, he had a 40-day intensive Bible study time with Jesus. If he thinks there are things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, relax if you read things in the Bible that make you scratch your head. It's okay. The Bible contains things that are hard to understand, and the Bible here is telling us that. It's, 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 a, it's a great moment of, of candid honesty on Peter's part. But he doesn't say, this is what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, our dear brother Paul writes these things, and in his letters there are many things that are hard to understand, so don't worry about those things. Just love Jesus. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Paul writes about things in his letters and they're hard to understand, so just read the parts you do understand. Just that, that's all you need to know. He doesn't say that either. He says, Paul writes these things, they're hard to understand, but be on your guard. Because people are going to come in and they are going to twist those things. Now, he doesn't say they're going to come in and deny that Paul wrote anything or that, that, that this is script. They're not going to flat out. That's, that's easy to spot when somebody says, hey, don't believe your Bible. Who's going to fall for that? It's the people who come along and say, hey, let me tell you what this really means. Those are the people who gather followers, who build complexes, and who create cults. Those are the people who go and teach classes in universities and tell young students, hey, that stuff you learned growing up, don't really believe all that. Those are the people who, in various ways, we have to look out for. Not the people who flat out deny the faith. That's, anybody can spot that. So 
Peter's saying the responsibility, church, it's on you. Be on your guard, even though some stuff in here is hard to understand. So the question that I would have, and the question that some of you may have if Peter were standing here, you'd say, well, that's great, Peter. You got to hang out with Jesus. You were part of not just the 12, but you were with the inner three. You got to see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and his head started glowing. Like, I've never even come anywhere close to seeing that. So, Peter, it's easy for you to say, be on your guard. You know the real Jesus. You hung out with him. All I have are your words and the inner leading of the Holy Spirit, which sometimes I'm not even sure of my own ability to handle that. Well, Peter said that Paul wrote these type things or or wrote similar things. So, it only makes sense to read what Paul wrote. In his letter to a church in Ephesus, it's called the Ephesian Church. And it's the book that we have in the New Testament called the book of Ephesians. In this letter, Paul, who Peter just mentioned, is writing to the churches, the Christians in Ephesus. And he's writing to them about how to be Christians, how to be the body of Christ. The whole book of Ephesians is about what it means to be in Christ. That phrase dominates the book. You go through with a highlighter or a pen and circle every time the word in Christ, in him, or in the Lord appears, your, your Bible will be polka dotted because it's everywhere. Well, part of being in Christ means that we are in community with one another. But it's not just that Jesus left us with a community. And it's not just that he left us with stories about him and he left us with, with even, even the Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling in us. But... Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, Paul says something pretty remarkable. It says, And he personally, meaning Jesus, he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature person with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Paul gives us Jesus' solution to this problem of, of how to not be be suckers to everything that comes down the pike that claims to be about Jesus. The solution is, he says, Jesus himself personally gave some, personally appointed some, made some of his followers to be apostles. Okay, an apostle, what's that? Well, apostles were people who would go out, they they were eyewitnesses to Jesus, like you had to see Jesus risen, and then they would go out and proclaim that and build and start new faith communities. Paul was an apostle, Peter, a number of the New Testament authors were also apostles. They were the church planters. They were the ones who would go form the communities that would become the churches. And he says he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets. Prophets were people who God would gift through the Holy Spirit to speak his word to those communities that the apostles had formed. Whether that was telling future events, that was part of it. Prophets sometimes would receive words about the future. But more often than not, prophecy was speaking God's desire and his heart to his people at that time. Kind of what we call preaching. If you read the Old Testament prophets, that's the majority of what they do is what God wants them to know now, not necessarily future things, although that is part of it. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. 
Evangelists were people that would go and preach the gospel. They would go and tell people, hey, here is what God has done. Here is the advent, the coming of God into the world. They would preach the gospel. Gospel is a word that wasn't religious necessarily. In, in the Roman Empire, when you wanted to issue a decree, if you wanted to declare good news about something, you would write up a, what's in Greek, a euangelion, evangelion. Uh, it just means gospel. It means good news. So the emperor did something really neat, and he wanted to tell people in the province about it. He would write up a gospel, and they would, his followers would take that gospel and tell it to those people about what he had done. Well, the gospel, capital G gospels, are Jesus's announcement of what he has done, that his followers sent into all the world. That's what the evangelists would do. They would proclaim that. And then we come to the fourth and fifth uh, offices as Jesus gave. Now, some people say these are two separate things. Some people say they're, they're the same thing with two functions. The Greek language underneath the text supports both ways of reading, and I don't think it matters much. It says Jesus gave some people to be pastors and teachers. And the job of pastors and teachers is to take Scripture, to digest Scripture, to read, to study, to know what's in here, and then to help others get those truths, to help others find the truth in God's Word. The, 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 the term of pastor, the image that pastor signifies is shepherd. It's, it's a shepherd. And a shepherd doesn't, a shepherd doesn't have a bunch of sheep Let's say I'm a shepherd and I lead the sheep in. I don't get down on my hands and knees and chew the grass up and then spit it into the sheep's mouth. One, that's disgusting. Two, that's not helping them figure out how to eat. I lead the sheep to where there's good grass. If there's stuff to look out for, if there's some poison or if there's some wolves or whatever, I lead them away from that. I guide them. I help them. I nurse them when they're sick. I give them what they need. That's the image of a pastor and a teacher. That's what you are if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a kid's Sunday school teacher, if you're a nursery worker, you're doing this stuff. It may just look different and have more spit up on it. That is what being a pastor is about, a teacher, one who, who does. See, Peter was saying, be on guard because there are people who are going to come and twist things. And Paul's saying, but to counter that, Jesus has appointed people to do these things from within the church. There's special callings. Everybody has calling from God, but some people's callings are to preach and to teach and to help equip. But again, the responsibility to actually take hold of that, you know, you can, you can lead a sheep to a pasture, but can't make him eat. The, the responsibility is on all of us as followers of Christ to take the initiative to say, you know what? I'm not going to be blown around. I'm not going to be tossed about. I'm not going to be led astray by people coming and telling me what this says. I'm going to know what this says for myself. And that doesn't mean what a lot of people think. You take the Bible, you go off, have a quiet time, you read it, and then you just decide what you think it means or what you feel the Holy Spirit leading you. God can work that way, but that's not the primary way. God intended to work through Scripture, and it's not the way he set up his church when he gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Scripture is to be learned in community with other people. It's to be sought after together in Christ. There's a, there's a man who lived at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. His name is E.W. Bullinger. He was, he was a, a, a biblical scholar. He was a grammarian. He, he focused on grammar. Now, 
If you're an English teacher in here, you're probably excited about that. If you're the rest of us, you don't care. Grammar is a very boring subject, I'll, at least to me it is. Uh, you suffered through sentence diagramming in school, and now you can speak relatively good English. But this guy, Bollinger, was a grammarian. And he took scripture and he dissected and he cataloged and he separated every single grammatical construct possible in the Greek and the Hebrew languages and classified them. And he produced a book called Figures of Speech Used in the Bible. It's about this thick. It's huge. And it's as boring as it is thick. If you can't sleep, call me, email me. I'll send you Bullinger's book. It'll put you to sleep. But it's a valuable tool for studying the Bible and learning what it actually said for pastors and teachers and scholars. In the preface to this monumentally boring yet valuable work, E.W. Bollinger writes this, and I included this on your handout in the middle. This is what Bollinger said. A man who had given his life to, to, to studying the Bible, literally word by word. He says, the word of God may in one respect be compared to the earth. All things necessary to life and sustenance may be obtained by scratching the surface of the earth. But there are treasures of beauty and wealth to be obtained by digging deeper into it. So it is with the Bible. All things necessary to life and godliness lie upon its surface for the humblest saint. But beneath that surface are great spoils which are to be found only by those who seek after them as for hid treasure. I love Bollinger's analogy. Now, he, he, he was a weird fellow, and he had some weird end times beliefs. And regardless, I love his analogy for Scripture. He says, think about it like the earth. Humans have lived, been living on the earth for thousands of years, at least. And we've always been able to get by. We, we, everything you need is on the surface. You need plants for food and, and for building materials and for shade. You need animals for food and for companionship and for whatever you need to help you till the earth. Everything you need is on the surface. You need water. You get it from lakes or rivers. It's all on the surface. The treasures, though, are deep underground. And humans have been fighting and killing each other and, and doing everything they can to get to those treasures as long as we've ever known they've existed. And that's why companies will spend billions of dollars digging into the earth to get at the treasure there, whether it's diamond mines in South Africa or whether it's oil in the Gulf Coast. Companies will spend billions to get at that treasure. It must be worth it. It must be worth it. It's the same thing with Scripture. You, you can be a godly, spirit-filled wonderful Christian, live your entire life not knowing anything other than John 3.16 or Genesis 1.1. And you can, you can please the Lord and you can, you can be, live a good Christian life. But there are treasures deeper in Scripture. And the more you dig, the, the fuller, the, the more the spiritual life starts to take on, starts to take up your whole life. You become consumed and, and, and you become, um, you move from religion and Christianity to being something that you kind of believe or that you believe and you love it, but you don't really know a lot about it, so you just sort of hang out over here in, you know, surface area. It goes to become the heart of who you are. When you dig, you get the treasure. And, and that's what my, my job, my ministry, my, my calling is to help people dig, giving them good shovels and spades and whatnot. 
in the book of Genesis, there's, there, I've given you at the bottom of the handout. I'm, I won't read this section. This is, you can read it on your own, maybe talk about it in your small group or Sunday school. In the book of Genesis, chapter 32, there's a story of Jacob. And Jacob, that's not a, nowadays that's a cool name. That's a great biblical name. In scriptural times, Jacob, Yaakov, was a Hebrew word that meant uh, sneaky, one who comes behind and takes what's not his, one who supplants where, you know, other people's stuff. It just wasn't a great name. Uh, but it was descriptive of who Jacob actually turned out to be for the first half of his life. Well, Jacob had tricked his dad with the help of his mom. He had tricked his dad into giving him the birthright and the blessing that was supposed to go to his older brother Esau. And he did it by basically on his father's deathbed lying to his dad. His dad asked him a question, what's your name? Who am I talking to? And he said, not Jacob, he said Esau. Lied to his dad. He got the blessing. His brother was furious. Jacob ran away, fled to the home where his ancestors were from. Years and years, he acquired his own family. He got married. He sort of got tricked into marrying somebody else. And then he got their maidservants. So he had like four sort of wives, and they were having competitions on who could have the most babies because that was seen as your pride and your joy back in those days. Crazy dysfunctional family, Jacob. Well, he's coming back years and years later. God appeared to him while he was gone and said, if you follow me, despite all of your foolishness, despite all of your conniving, despite your insanely dysfunctional family, I will bless you, and I will carry my promises forth through you. Well, one night he's coming back, he hears that his brother's coming out to meet him, and his brother's coming out with some troops. So Jacob's nervous, thinking, is he coming to welcome me with fanfare, or is he coming to destroy me? Jacob, being Jacob, sends his family ahead as sort of a peace offering. Like, all right, here's my family, you know, if you want to kill them, kill them, and they'll give me time to get away. Uh, he, He sends his family first. And he camps out overnight. Well, while he's camping out, the text says, it's very strange, it's just this enigmatic passage in Genesis 32, 24. It says, a man appeared and wrestled with him all night, or grappled with him, struggled with him. All night they wrestled. And then we find out in the text that this man actually turns out to be God himself. God appears as a man. He can do that. That's what this is. God appears as a man And he wrestles with Jacob. He struggles all night. And Jacob realizes this, but he's still holding on. He's not going to let go. He says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. They have this exchange. God asks him, what is your name? Very telling question since last time Jacob lied about. He says, my name's Jacob. He says, you're right. But your name's not going to be Jacob anymore. It's going to be Yisrael, Israel, he who struggles or wrestles with God. And from that moment on, Jacob became Israel. Israel was what the whole thing's all about. The whole Bible is the story of Israel's descendants. And that one descendant, Jesus, who would come from Israel. What's the point in all that? Well, the point is that Jacob's whole identity was transformed through wrestling with God, through struggling with God. I don't know if any of you ever wrestled. It's really hard. It's hard work. Even if you're wrestling with your kids and it's playing, it's still hard work. Um, it'll wear you out. Well, imagine wrestling with God. This is even more hard work. Through the wrestling, through the struggling, Jacob was transformed. He was given a new identity. He experienced God and was never the same. It's the same thing with us when we study 
when we really wrestle with God through studying his word. Because if you're reading scripture, you're wrestling with God. If you, aren't read, if, you, if you read scripture and don't wrestle with God, if you don't question, if, you don't, if some things don't make you go, what? You're not reading scripture. But it's through that wrestling, through that struggle, that we too become transformed. That our faith goes from something that we just sort of believe and celebrate at various times throughout the year to the core of who we are. It's the same as like Bollinger's analogy with digging. The treasure is there but you've got to dig. Peter's warning to us. False teachers, all of these people are going to come. They're going to twist things around. It's hard to understand, but you've got to be on your guard. So the question that, a great question to, to, to deal with as we celebrate Advent this season is, are you, are you ready to wrestle with God? Are you ready to dig into his word? Or are you okay with being tossed around, blown about, led astray? Too many Christians answer in the latter rather than the former on that one. But as a church, Forest Hills has the ability and has the calling. You have gifted pastors and teachers who are here to guide and walk with you through that. You have resources. You have small groups. You have Sunday school classes. Um, you, you, we live in an age where there's more access to scriptural truths than, there, than people can imagine in the days of Jesus, or even 200 years ago, even 100 years ago. Will you wrestle Will you dig? Will you really get to the meaning of what this is all about that we celebrate? Or will you just continue to be tossed around, blown about, led astray? The responsibility at the end of the day is on you, and it's on me to really apply ourselves. I pray that that's what happens here at Forest Hill, that's what continues to happen that, that you continue to churn out disciples, people that are on fire for Jesus. Um, I, I say that as somebody who received much of my spiritual formation here. Um, but, but that's my prayer and, and my challenge to you. Don't settle for just surfacey faith. Don't settle for devotional reading of the Bible. Dig deeper. Make your leaders take you deeper. Make your pastors take you deeper. And you will be blessed as a result of it let's pray Lord thank you for this church for this body of believers thank you for inspiring and giving us your word and thank you for giving us the ability through those you've appointed through those that you've equipped those you've called that we can have access to your word that we're not left alone Thank you for community, Christian community, where we can struggle together, where we can bring our questions, our concerns, where we can go deeper. And I pray that, that everyone in here today and, and, and who's even anybody associated with Forest Hills would have a hunger to go deeper and to dig, to really figure out what it is that you're saying to them, that Scripture would become the bread that they live on. Lord, you've left us this amazing resource and you've given us the ability to understand it and to grow from it. I pray that we would all be moved to take advantage of that. Over this holiday season, let us not settle. Let us not settle for a cultural Christmas, but spur us on to know who you are, Emmanuel, God with us, and do that through the study of your word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.